0: Brought to you by the reinvented 2012 Camry. It's ready. Are you?
1: Welcome to Stuff Mom Never Told You from HowStuffWorks.com.
0: Hey there and welcome to the podcast. I'm Kristen. I'm Molly. Molly, something I did not realize was that Viagra has been around for almost a decade now. Wow. Can you believe that? That... That
1: is kind of hard to believe. Yeah, because I remember when it first came out, it was so scandalous. And right. so, so ha ha ha. Well, I'm still kind of scandalized by the commercials as I was telling you beforehand. Yeah. I, I just don't like Viagra commercials. Why don't you like them, Molly? Well, for a while, they had like a bunch of guys sitting around the studio singing about Viagra, the Viva Viagra song. Mm-hmm. And I was just like, I don't know. I just couldn't believe that guys would do that. Just really couldn't believe that guys would sit around and play guitar and sing about Viagra. But they were so happy. They no longer had to deal with they erectile dysfunction. All right. And well, the new one, the new one really gets my goat. Okay. I was telling you this earlier. There's the new one where the guy's walking down the street and then they're like a vision of him pops up in the window and he's like, are you going to ask your doctor? And the guy walking down the sidewalk goes, about what? And the mirror image goes, about our erectile dysfunction. And at that point, I'm just like, why don't you ask your doctor about the fact that you see like visions of yourself in the <laughs> store windows? I mean, it's just, I can't buy the fact that That someone's going to actually, I can't buy the fact he's going to need Viagra after he's walked down the sidewalk talking to store windows. Well, Molly, if you have a problem with male
0: Viagra commercials, is that redundant to say male Viagra? Um, Is it, Kristen? That's our topic for today. That is the topic for today. The question is, what's going to happen when the female Viagra comes on the market? I bet those commercials, I predict right now that if a female Viagra comes on the market, the commercials are going to be... Very, very similar to tampon commercials. Oh, and
1: they're going to be awful. Yeah. They're going to be like all these perfectly, you know, done up ladies sitting mm-hmm. around talking about problems during certain times. Lots of reds and pinks. They might be sipping on afternoon tea. Yes, definitely afternoon tea mm-hmm. or a cocktail. Yeah. Just eating yogurts. <laughs> it's going to be like... It's going to be every single lady commercial rolled up into one. Yes. Now, you might now be wondering why
0: Molly and I are going on and on about this female Viagra question. And it's because last winter, around November, a pharmaceutical firm called Boeinger Ingelheim did a very large test, presented the results of a large clinical phase three clinical trial on a medication called Flabanserin.
1: For bamsiren.
0: For They first tried to develop this as an antidepressant. Didn't work too well, but in their animal studies, they said they found out that uh, noticed that that hey, these these mice seem a little excited.
1: Well, and that's also how Viagra came around. They were testing for one thing, and then they're like, oh, by the way, this this can cause erections. And so ever since they completed those animal trials, they think they have you know what they're terming the female Viagra on their hands. Um. But it's let's start off real quick with just a distinction. That Viagra causes blood flow to head to the penis to cause an erection. Mm-hmm. It addresses a physical problem. These people, the, the German pharmaceutical uh, company is saying that they can solve a psychiatric problem known as hypoactive sexual desire disorder or HSDD. And this is a distressing de- lack of sexual desire absent other medical conditions. So it's not that... A woman physically can't have sex or doesn't enjoy sex; it's that she doesn't even want it in the first place.
0: Right. So, I mean, all these these the the tagline in the media of female Viagra is kind of a misnomer. Um, and this would be a pill that you would take every day, kind mm-hmm. of like birth control. And they don't exactly know how flabanserin stimulates the sexual desire, but they do know that it modulates a set of neurotransmitters, especially serotonin, and to a lesser extent dopamine and norepinephrine, to kind of adjust those levels and and get everything everything cooking down there to cause some desire.
1: Well, it might be in your head too. And that's right. now, see, that's the thing is this is a very controversial diagnosis in the first place. So I think that it's rubbed some people the wrong way that people are already trying to cure something that some doctors aren't even sure is a problem because let's say you don't want to have sex. You are absent that desire. What if you just had a baby? What if you're really stressed at work? What if you have like the common cold? There are all sorts of reasons why you might not have the desire to have sex And some worry that these doctors are just rushing to give women a pill for something that's not actually a problem. Right, because it
0: keeps coming. All these articles that Molly and I ran across kept coming back to this question of, well, what does constitute a normal sex drive? With Viagra, it's addressing a very obvious problem with a very obvious fix. You know, the the penis is not... Correct, and now it is. Yeah. There you go, problem solved. However, this issue of sexual desire, like you said, which could it is very much a mental issue, and also compounded by a number of vi- environmental factors, isn't something you know that you can just say is going to be the same for everybody and should be the same for everybody. And there were a number of women in these articles, such as Liz Canner, who is the director of Orgasm, Inc., which is a documentary film about the over-medicalization of sex. We have Julie Norsigian, who's the executive director of Women's Health Advocacy of Our Bodies, Ourselves in Cambridge, Massachusetts. And then we have Lori Tyfer who's a PhD psychologist at the New York University School of Medicine. All these women, these names just keep popping up in all of these articles, coming out and saying, wait a second, you know, why we're coming out and saying, well, this is this is a great thing for all these women who don't want to have sex, but we're not really addressing the root of the problem.
1: Right. And there are so many other, they say, options to turn to before this, you know, therapy, um, exercise, just, you know, things that don't involve taking a pill that we don't know the long-term effects of. But you know what, Kristen, let's see what this pill actually does, because it might be one thing to say, oh, maybe it's not a real disorder, but... If I'm going to ha- want to have sex every day, I'm sure there are women out there who are like, well, I could deal with that. I have problems with desire. Let's let's hear what you got, Boeringer Ingelheim. Well, Molly, um, and this
0: information is coming from a very good uh, blog post about this on neuroskeptic, and it breaks down uh, the research paper that was published called The Pharmacology of Phlebancerin. And essentially, the research shows that it's sort of a cross between a... An antidepressant and, um, a dopamine receptor agonist, which stimulates the dopamine in the brain and also a mild sedative.
1: Mm-hmm. Now it's not going to be marketed as an antidepressant. Right. They're going to, they will be marketed as something that increases desire. But yeah, I mean, one quote was that it's essentially like a glass of wine. Mm-hmm. And
0: they performed three trials with a total of about 1,400 women who were either taking 100 milligrams of flibanserin every night, um, or they were on a placebo pill. And relative to the placebo, the women who were taking the flibanserin uh, increased the number of quote satisfying sexual encounters by 0.7 per month. 0.7 extra sexual satisfying
1: encounters per month. So not even one a week. Not even an entire. (laughs) So not even an entire. Satisfying sexual encounter. Just
0: over half of a satisfying sexual encounter.
1: You know what I found kind of interesting? Maybe this is just me. Is that in the phlebancerin group, the women before they had a baseline period where they just took, you know, a regular journal of sexual activity. They had 2.8 sexually satisfying events within the period already. Mm-hmm. And during the study period, they had 4.5 sexually satisfying events in the same time. So that is more than a 50% increase in the number of sexually satisfying events they were having.
0: So they're basically going from bi-weekly sex, let's say, to weekly sex.
1: But we don't know a lot about who these women are. All we know is that they're premenopausal.
0: We know they're premenopausal
1: and they're in long-term relationships. But I mean, we don't know, do we, how many kids they have, mm-hmm. what kind of jobs they have. And this all goes back to, as you said, Kristen, this question of what is a normal sex drive for a woman who is in a long-term relationship? I mean, what other factors might be going on where, you know, 2.8 sexually satisfying events isn't enough and 4.5 represents a really big increase? Now the big question
0: is whether or not that 0.7 extra satisfying sexual encounters is going to be enough for the Food and Drug Administration to give flibanserin the go-ahead and
1: for the company to start marketing it. Yeah, it's going to be years before you could actually see one of these dreaded flibanserin commercials. Right,
0: because there are and there are also other contenders in this market because, of course, it's going to be huge. The first... F- quote, female Viagra to come out on the market, it's going
1: to sell like gangbusters, I'm sure. Well, it'll be interesting, I think, to see if it sells more to women or to men who want women to feel more sexual desire. Right.
0: Um, but a couple of other contenders are uh, a testosterone patch called Intrisia. And in late 2004, the FDA was on the brink of of approving it. But then uh, the advisory panel saw, found a number of problems with the evidence for its effectiveness and its safety. So they kind of went back to the drawing board with that. And then they've got another drug. And I think this drug is kind of interesting. This is called brilaminotide that's in development for not only low female sex drive, but also for male erectile dysfunction.
1: So this one is in phase two clinical trials, and it's a new chemical Created in the laboratory, that's going to act on the central nervous system on your hypothalamus, uh, which is involved in sexual arousal. I will say they lost me on this one when they said it was given in the form of a nasal spray, because I am just really bad with nasal sprays.
0: That might that might not put you in the mood to have to shoot some. I just your.
1: yeah, I just it always ends up wrong allergy seasons rough for me. I digress. (laughs)
0: Um so yeah, so there's a lot of effort and money being poured into looking at, you know, this issue, trying to address this issue of this hypoactive sexual disorder in women. But then the question is also um statistically, how many how many women are we talking about? What portion
1: of the female population? Well, and this is where things get interesting because I think that depending on how you ask the question, which we don't know how these studies did I mean, everyone's going to admit that they don't have sexual desire at some point. I mean, when I'm at work right now doing this podcast, I don't have sexual desire. And I find that comforting, Molly. (laughs) I'm just saying it might depend when they ask, if they come in and ask me in the middle of the podcast.
0: No, but that's a good point. We don't know exactly what what survey questions they're asking.
1: But we do know that according to one survey question, they got pretty, pretty large results. Uh, According to the January, February 2005 issue of the International Journal Journal of Impotence Research, 43% of women have low sexual desire.
0: But and I wonder strange. if it's a Journal of Impotence research, if they're really trying to throw, cast as wide of a net as possible. Exactly. Maybe they've got an angle. Uh, and then we've got, um, some lower numbers coming from 2003 in the British, British Medical Journal showing that about 10% of English women reported, quote, lack of interest in sex lasting at least six months in the
1: past year. And also the HSDD diagnosis implies that you are upset that you don't have sexual desire. And according to a survey by John Bancroft, who is the former director of the Kinsey Institute, he asked women, A, do you lack interest in sex, but B, are you upset about it? And 7% of the women reported having no sexual thoughts in the past month, but less than 3% said they had the no sexual thoughts and didn't feel distressed about it. So I think that that does indicate that a lot of women just have other things going on. And don't feel the need to have sex despite what, you know, culture's throwing at us, right. what you see on television. You're just going about your life and if sex happens, it happens, but you're not dwelling on it.
0: Yeah. And also a lot of these articles brought up the point that before Viagra, if a guy, for instance, has ED, it was just. All right, well, that's too bad. You're impotent. He was called impotent. Now that we have a medication that can address that problem, it's almost sort of normalized um, this idea of constantly needing to have sex. Mm-hmm. Whereas, you know, that question that um, was at British, British Medical Journal was asking women if they really hadn't thought much about sex in the past six months. I'm sure that there are plenty of men and women out there who go through periods of time when they might choose to be celibate or they just have a lot of personal things going on when... No, it's not, it's not the number one thing on their, on their agenda. However, culturally, I think because largely in part because of Viagra, um, it, it, we're trained to think that there's something wrong with that.
1: Exactly. I mean, imagine if you're, if you're one of these women, these 7% of women who haven't had a sexual thought in the past month that the, the Kinsey Institute director found. And then you see the commercial for something like flabantra and you're like, Holy crap! I haven't thought about sex in six months, and yeah. then you're going to start taking a pill, and you may not have needed it in the first place. Mm-hmm. And one interesting point that was raised by uh, a researcher at the Kinsey Institute in the Time article we we've been referencing is: let's say you have low libido, and you take the pill, and you know you're married, and all of a sudden you do have sexual desire, but it's not for the person that you are in this long-term relationship with. Like we can't control, and doctors will never be able to control who you feel desire for. But maybe you've lost sexual desire and aren't necessarily out of love with the person that you've married. And you brought up a good point
0: when we were talking before we were podcasting, Molly, about how with Viagra, men have total control. They pop the pill intending to have sex with a certain person mm-hmm. for, you know... So, uh, intending to have a certain sexual encounter. Right. Whereas with flabanserin, this is something that you're taking every day to just increase your just baseline sexual desire. There's not as much of a control factor with it right. for women as there is for men. And I don't know that that's necessarily a, a bad thing, but especially if you're in a long-term relationship like the women in those clinical trials, but I don't know. I mean, I guess it, it, It definitely doesn't seem like we're on an even playing field with this whole thing.
1: No, I mean, you know, and it's, it does, they're saying that you could go off of it once you've addressed the problem, but it does sound like it's going to be something you're on every day for the rest of your life. Um So, yeah, I mean, you will be walking around maybe having more sexual thoughts, but not necessarily channeling them the way you would wish to channel them. Mm -hmm.
0: And I think from our conversation, it sounds like we're really, you know, coming out against this and against this concept of having a sexual desire disorder. And I don't want you guys to misinterpret us saying this is just discrediting the existence of hypoactive sexual desire disorder. It's a very real thing for plenty of women out there. But I do think with this phlebancerin, uh, possibility, it does raise a very important question about, you know, what constitutes the normal sex drive and, um, should women be kind of forcing themselves into, into, I guess, creating, chemically creating sexual desire.
1: Right. I mean, I, I think it's helpful to think about it as physical versus psychiatric. They're saying that HSDD is totally psychiatric and there are women out there who physically can't have sex and this pill won't help them. It's not like the Viagra will just cause an erection. Mm-hmm. It's just going to give you the desire to have sex. So I think that's a very tricky thing to say that you can medicate. But again, the FDA has got a few years to figure this out. We'll know more as time goes on. We just want to check in with this potentially life-changing drug. Yeah, and let us hear your
0: thoughts on the issue. Women, would you love to have a female Viagra out there? Do you think that flibanserin might be the cure for all ills. Let us know. Our email is at momstuffathowstuffworks.com and we're going to read a couple of emails that you guys send in.
1: So I've got uh, two emails that covered the same topic. One is from Michelle, who has lived in Japan for over four years, and one is from Wakana, who is from Japan originally. And uh, they both kind of say the same thing. I'm going to start with Wakana's and just kind of summarize Michelle's. Um, Wakana writes... Here in Japan, especially in public bathrooms, we Japanese women hate to be heard uh, when we're peeing. So what do we do? We just keep flushing the toilet water to muffle the sound. I usually flush water twice during my time. It's not ecological at all, is it? So some companies came up with a great idea. It's called Otohimi, and I don't know if I'm pronouncing that right, but the direct translation according to her would be Princess of the Sound. And this is a muffling sound device in restroom stalls. It creates music of the brook along with chirps of birds. Almost every public restroom stall has this device now. So all you have to do is close the door, sit down, press the button, and take a leak. No need to turn toward the back and jiggle the handle. We all know it's obvious to the people outside the stall that we are peeing. We don't care. At least the pee sound is disguised. And uh, Michelle wrote in with sort of the funny anecdote that the first time she kind of realized that she was the only person she could hear in her bathroom that all the other ladies were just flushing toilets and playing the sound recorders. And then she realized, huh, I can only hear myself. kind of wish Alice AllSuffWorks had one of those devices.
0: Think I think it's it pretty would, cool. I think that it would make the office environment for women far less stressful. <laughs> Just my two cents. All right, well, I've got one here from Angela in response to our podcast on cord blood. And she said, in your cord blood podcast, you failed to consider the option of delaying cord clamping so that your newborn receives the benefits of his or her own cord blood at the time of birth. Studies show infants that experience delayed cord clamping, delayed cord clamping, that's kind of hard to say, have a higher volume of oxygenated blood as well as higher iron stores. Delayed cord clamping may not be an option offered to moms, that birth at hospitals but it is common in home births so thank you Angela
1: so let's do one more um this is also about the poop podcast and we did that one it aired in March and apparently we we were quite timely Kristen because March is colon cancer awareness month I know it's not March anymore but you can be aware of your colon all year long this is from Janelle who writes that one of the signs you might have colon cancer is a change in poop It is a common misconception that women don't get colon cancer, but that's just not true. And since I know you ladies love your stats, I'll throw this at you. In 2006, 26,395 women died of colon cancer. In your state, Georgia, 670 women died of colon cancer in 2006. Colon cancer is treatable if caught early, so if a woman is age 50 plus, it is not a bad idea at all to get screened. Also, changes in bowel habits shouldn't be ignored if you're under 50, as colon cancer can also be found in women under the age. I email because my mom had a polyp found in her colon after a change in her poop, got treated early, and has had no problems since. So again, ladies, don't ignore the poop. Pay attention to your poop.
0: And also email us. Our email is momstuff at howstuffworks.com. And you can head over to our weekday home. It is the website howstuffworks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. Want more HowStuffWorks? Check out our blogs on the HowStuffWorks.com homepage. Brought to you by the reinvented 2012 Camry. It's ready. Are you?